You're listening to Felony Podcast on the Startup Radio Network. The Felony Podcast explores ex-felons that have gone on to launch their own startups. We explore the ups, the downs, the behind-the-bar stories with these founders. Felony Podcast airs every Friday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific Time. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Felony Inc. Podcast. I'm your host, Dick Hennessy. We have a special guest with us on the phone tonight. Uh, sir, what is your name and what is it that you do? My name is Mark Mitchell. I am the director of outreach for a organization in South Florida called Chainless Change. We provide reentry support services to people who are reentering into the community and help those who are negatively impacted by the criminal justice system, whether that is direct involvement or indirect um, involvement with the justice system. All right, Mark, that sounds great. Um, just real quick for our listeners, uh, could you elaborate maybe a little bit on your um, your history, your past criminal activity, things of that nature? Well, I was um, convicted of criminal offenses at a pretty young age. I became incarcerated um, at the age of 13 and served about six years or more inside of juvenile and adult institutions before I turned 22 years old. Um, so <clears throat> when entering into those systems, of course, I had, you know, deficits and lots of challenges that I needed to um, work through and found that when I returned to the community that there was really no one there to welcome me um, and that I had not been equipped to return back into society and be a productive member of the community where I resided. So um, I went through some challenges and eventually once I was able to stabilize myself, I decided to start to reach back and help others. Okay. I mean, that sounds very uh, commendable for sure. Um, if you don't mind me asking, for thirteen is pretty early to get introduced into the criminal justice system. What uh, what were you doing at the time that, that got you that into that situation? Well, I think the offenses aren't as important as the experiences, and so um, for me, I entered into the justice system kind of because I didn't really have an advocate and. Going in at 12 years old, I was kind of in foster care and had dealt with sexual abuse and lots of trauma. Um, and so I would lash out. I did not know how to handle emotions and um, those things that I was feeling at, that I was feeling at that time. And so what I would do was respond negatively to those around me, whether that would be fighting or, you know, um, verbal disrespect and sometimes kind of just running away. And so after a while, I ended up being um, placed inside of a group home that was sort of a therapeutic home where we were there constantly around the clock. So we went to school there and we um, stayed there. And there was an incident inside of that, in, inside of that group home that 
resulted in me um, being charged with a battery offense. Someone, I didn't have any belongings and much connection to um, my family at that point. But what I did have was a picture book um, that kind of held all of the good memories that I could recall. And there were um, people there who would kind of take your belongings. And one of those things that was taken from me was my book. And I'd gotten into an incident there that turned pretty bad. And from there, I was shuffled into the juvenile justice system. Um, and while remaining and while inside of those juvenile justice institution, um, I got into a couple of other altercations with, you know, staff as well as um, those fellow um, inmates inside of that institution that resulted in additional charges. So for me, what happened was I kind of built a criminal record um, while being incarcerated or initially it started at a group home and it grew um, quite a bit while I was inside of those juvenile facilities. I had stayed in there for about four years. Um, and while I was in, my grandmother, who was the only relative that um, I I kind of had that I knew what would be my support system as much as possible, um, she died while I was in there. Um, and so I kind of just felt like I was stuck there and didn't have a voice. And after having a number of different incidents inside of that institution, they decided that they would um, then transfer me over into the adult system um, <clears throat> without me having, you know, a real chance at re-entering into the community. And so for me, that was a concern because I felt like I was being railroaded. I'd stayed, I'd gotten in there when I was like 12, went into the actual um, department's custody at 13. And here I am 17 and about to be transferred into a adult facility where I would remain until I turned 21. So I started to try to find ways to get myself out of that institution. Um, I would write letters to judges and reach out to BCF and the Department of Juvenile Justice, and no one was responsive to me. So eventually I decided that in order to get back in front of the judge to have that um, decision overturned or a modification of my sentence um, to the other facilities, I would escape. And so I escaped from that juvenile justice institution. And um, at that point, of course, I was arrested again and charged as an adult and placed inside of an adult facility at 17 years old. Um, but it did give me an opportunity to spend some time um, in an adult system where I was able to um, learn about the judicial process a bit and also be placed into contact with people who were actually interested in helping me resolve my situation and obtain my freedom again. Okay. That's, I mean, that's a crazy story, honestly, man. Uh, I can only imagine what it's like to be, I mean, you're not even a teenager yet and you're getting sucked into this and this whole entire thing. And, um, and you basically did five, almost five years, and then you released, is what you're saying. And then at 21 again, from 17 to 21, you you got caught up back into the lifestyle or whatever, and got back into the the prison system at 21. Correct. 
Well, what happened was I was released and I felt like heck to get out of that institution because I just wanted to be free again. Um, but I wasn't equipped to return to society. And like I said, my grandmother had died while I was in there. I'd already entered into the system in foster care. So there was really no support system um, for me when I was returning back into um, the community. And in addition to that, I kind of got into a point where I aged out of foster care. So although I wanted to go home, I really didn't have a home to go to. I left out, out of that institution homeless. And I emancipated myself, so no one was really responsible for me at that point. Um, emancipating myself was going through the process to be identified as independent or able to take care of myself, which I wasn't. But uh, doing that, going through that process allowed me to be released from that institution. Um, so I got out. And I went to college to prevent from being homeless. I didn't have anywhere to stay. I knew that if I went to school, that at least I'd have a place to sleep and some food. And that's what I did. But I wasn't really focused on education. I wasn't focused on um, being a good student. I just went there out of necessity. And eventually I kind of started to... Um, I started to live out some of those stories that I'd heard from people inside of those centers. I went in really young, not much exposure to the streets or, you know, the criminal um, criminal activity, but I heard people tell stories about how they were able to be successful with criminal activity and how they were able, how they managed to get caught and what mistakes they made. And I felt like I had a blueprint to be um, a really successful criminal, right? And so, um, and kind of just live a life of um, under, the, under the radar and not get caught. And so I started to try to live that out. And it eventually resulted in me being kicked out of college and ending back up inside of institutions. I mean, it's easy to get caught up in that. You know, here you are, instead of being in middle school and high school and, and learning social studies and things like that, you're learning from, it's essentially high school, middle school, and college of criminality or criminology. And uh, getting caught up, you know, it's easy to feel... Like with all this expertise and information, you're squandering it by not utilizing it when you get out. And you chose instead of to go with because it sounds to me like you, you obviously had absolutely no family structure, so there was nothing holding you back from just trying to do whatever it took to survive and be successful in life for once, you know. And this well, is, yeah, most of most of my life was kind of just about survival. Even as I kind of go back to um, my childhood and, you know, having my grandmother there, she was there, but she wasn't able to be actively engaged because of her health and um, they're just not having the knowledge to um, help me navigate through what my experiences were. She was from a completely different era um, and was familiar with different traditions and practices that were not as beneficial to me during that time as they would have been to someone during the time that she was growing up. So even then, I kind of felt like I was on my own, um, although I knew that I had that support that wanted to be there but didn't quite know how but once she once, once she passed away it was just me out there on my own trying to figure it out and I came home or was released 
to figure it out. And if you think about it, I went in as a child. I came out as an adult with adult responsibilities, having to make adult decisions. But I, again, I just never went through a process where I was equipped for that. Um, and, and so I had to find ways to survive. And when survival is placed at the forefront of priorities, I mean, there's that Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And you know, when, when you're not able to meet those needs and that's the priority, then it's really difficult to invest in your future or invest in decisions. And sometimes uh, when it's challenging to meet your, um, to meet your, your needs that are immediate, it, it, it results in people kind of deviating and making decisions um, out of necessity that may have a negative impact on their lives. And that's exactly where I found myself. That's completely understandable. So what you're saying is you got out at 17. You began, you, you enrolled in college, everything was going smooth in that, and then you kind of deviated into the criminal lifestyle again. And then from 17 to 21, everything was cool, and then you got arrested again or incarcerated again, correct? Well, not, not, not exactly everything was going cool. At no point during that time <laughs> yeah. was everything cool. <laughs> but, I mean, but things were not incarcerated, you know, like you were out on the streets free. I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't, I, I wasn't incarcerated, you know, physically, but mentally I was. Everything, every decision that I made was about surviving. Like, even with me being in school, I wasn't focused on that. Um, I, I was focused on how I was going to survive. I was taking out loans to be at an institution um, that was extremely expensive because other institutions wouldn't allow me, that were affordable, wouldn't allow me to go there because of my criminal record. I'd been adjudicated as an adult when I was a juvenile. So I'm at school, um, a, a, a school where the tuition is about $28,000 a year. Um, even the little financial aid that I did get covered about 14000 uh, 14, of that. So I was left with a really large bill that I had to figure out how to address. And if I wasn't able to address it, then I would have ended up homeless again. So I would take out loans and there was still there would still be a deficit that I'd have to figure out. And the first thing that happens is if you're not able to pay, um, make payments to whatever balance you have, um, they'll take away your room and board. If the room and board um, was removed for me, I was back on the street. It was never an easy process for me. And you were constantly behind the eight ball on this and just trying I, to... I, I was constantly behind the eight ball, and I eventually had to figure out how to buy a car so that I could have somewhere to sleep when the school closed for the Christmas break and the summer breaks. Wow. So how long, how long were you able to successfully remain in school before things went bad for you? About, about, about a year and a half to two years. Okay, so from 17 to 19? Correct. Like in 17 to 19 and towards my, and when I was 19, I got kicked out of school. And j just out of curiosity, what was your, what was your field of study? What was your major in school that you were going towards? Funny thing is I was majoring in social work. I wanted to be a social worker so, I, so that I could help people like me. And one of the most discouraging things about the the field that I decided to go into was actually that I wouldn't even be able to work in that field because of my criminal background. So I actually invested a lot of time or two years in school um, and getting 
credits in a field that I wouldn't able be able to be hired in because of my criminal background that happened um, when I was 16 years old and being adjudicated or direct filed as an adult. And I would also imagine that uh, just being there, you know, it's not just a college full of ex-cons. Like, I, I feel like possibly you, you might have had a hard time relating to other students at the at the school, if, that, if that's correct. I had a hard time relating to anyone. My background was completely different yeah. um, than most of the students there. Again, they were there to learn. I was there to survive. So it, it put me in a completely different category than most of them. Um, but also, the time that I was incarcerated did a lot of damage. I didn't learn social skills. I didn't even know the basic um, fundamentals um, that, that people would need to know entering into college. So I always felt like I was behind the eight ball um, in regards to education as well as social skills. It was really hard to communicate with people who had normal lives and who would talk about, you know, high school and prom. And because I didn't have those experiences, I graduated at 15 and started that institution and started writing books and, and poems and things to occupy my time. My experiences were completely different from theirs. Um, I didn't have the social skills. Um, I, I hadn't figured out how to address my criminogenic behavior. And I, I constantly felt inadequate no matter what the situation was. Um, I deal with a bit of social anxiety because of the challenge of having to deal or interact with people who were kind of viewed as normal when I was that exception. I stood out like a sore thumb, man. And uh, it's completely understandable. And, uh, you know, just being that, that square peg in a round hole. Or, yeah. Uh, it, was, it was tough. I mean, it's impressive. You made it two years, honestly, after all that. And then uh, you just started at, at 19. You were just over it. And then you wanted to pursue uh, doing street-type activities, things like that. No, that's not how it happened either. Okay. <laughs> Let me <know>. um, <laughs> um, what I, I still went through a number of challenges. I think around um, 19, that incident happened with the school in which I got into an altercation with security guards. I was um, saw, I, I was recorded being beaten on camera by security guards. And um, because I responded to one of them that was beating me, granted, I talked a lot of trash. I knew how to push those buttons, um, but that didn't give them the right to respond the way that they did. And when they were uh, beating me, I kind of swung back at one of them, and it was caught on camera that I made contact. So I was charged for one out of three offenses because I made contact while being beaten. Um, that was a, a really, really unfortunate situation for me, and it, I, it resulted in me going further into a bit of depression and I think I started to deal with a couple of um well with with alcoholism at that point because I was extremely depressed. I already lacked social skills and didn't know how to um really sustain myself and even the little bit of normalcy that I did have um at that point, which was school was taken away from me. So with me being kicked out, I was homeless. 
Um, and sometimes it was easier to just go to jail so that I didn't have to figure out where I was going to sleep at night or how I was going to eat and didn't have to deal with the responsibilities of being a productive citizen in the community or the rejection that I would face constantly because of my background. That's completely understandable, and that's how so many of us just go right back into that. Um, on that note, uh, let's go on a commercial break real quick, and we'll get right back with you, Mark. Is that cool? That's fine with me. CPA dudes, where accounting is never boring. Their price is not based on time. Instead, customers decide what to pay them. They don't charge you for sending invoices, phone calls, emails, texts, or meetings. They just get the damn job done. Find them at cpadudes.com slash startup radio. Tell them Dave and Lad sent you, and we'll send you a very special surprise. Seriously, we will. Today's episode of the Felony Inc. podcast is brought to you by Publicize, a deconstructed PR subscription service which generates effective visibility for your business. Publicize handles all communications with the media and any content required to do this, such as press releases, editorial pitches, etc. And they offer a wide range of PR products and abilities out of which you can construct the PR package right for the future of your business. All right, and we're back. Uh, Mark, you still here with us? I am here. All right, uh, so 17, you start college. 19, you get in a little trouble with the security guards there and a little altercation. Um, and then you still have two more years until you actually end up going back to jail. Is that correct? Well, no, I was in and out of jail um, for about two years. Okay. In and out, in and out, um, consistently. And it was about 22 years old where I um, had my last time inside of an institution. I went to jail. I was staying with one of my friends. I was released from jail thinking that everything would be great. Um, And I could kind of just pick up things where they came off. And I came home only to realize that it wasn't home for me anymore. Um, I was no longer welcome there. All of my belongings had been um, discarded, and I had to figure out what to do next. So I kind of just used the, what, 60-something dollars that I had, got a bus ticket, went to Orlando, Florida, and completely started over. Um, I would work during the day at labor pools, and at night I would work as a server so that I could stay inside of a hotel where did I where I would live, um, you know, that allowed those weekly rates. And I would live there for almost a year until I could finally pull myself up and, and get a place. Okay. So you were doing that. At what point did you come up with the, uh, or had you been throughout the years kind of brainstorming and thinking about coming up with a concept like change this change or... When did when did this epiphany occur to you? Well, it actually was a long road there. Um, I came up with the name Changeless Change really, really at a really young age. I actually thought I would be a preacher, right? Um, <laughs> and so I kind of thought that it would be a ministry name of sorts, which it kind of did. But um, what happened for me was a bit different. I finally was able to stabilize things in my life. I got a um, position. Um, with a construction company that ended up being hired, um, that ended up being bought out by a company that was public. And while work while working there, I started off as a customer service rep. Uh, ended up getting promoted about 
four times and becoming an operations manager for that company. And what happened for me, uh, well, what happened with me was um, I, I was doing a lot of work in the community. I did a lot of stuff around helping people get their license um, reinstated um, when they were suspended as a result of legal financial obligations. I'm not sure if you all are dealing with that as much over in your area, um, but the state of Florida, if people are if people are 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 convicted of a crime or have any contact with the criminal justice system, they accumulate a bunch of different fines and fees. And if you are unable to afford to pay those fees, it results in your driver's license being suspended. That happened to me. And so I could not afford to pay it. It took me about three or four years to figure it out. And what I finally did was um, after making payments and payment arrangements that I couldn't keep, I found out how to navigate through the court systems and have that modified to community service. And once I figured it out for myself how to um, address that, I started helping other people who were having similar challenges and had been in contact with the justice system and couldn't afford to pay those fines and um, but wanted the right to have their driver's licenses and helping them. And I did that for a while uh, without, you know, it being an organization or anything. It was just something that I knew how to do and I knew that people needed it. And um, but but what happened um that pushed me into creating the organization was that I was working with a company and they were bought out by a, a large um, national company that became public. And when doing so, they let me go because of my criminal background. Florida is a right to work state. And so they had the ability to just make that decision at any point. Um, although I was a great employee, I had been promoted quite a few times. Um, but because I was vocal in the community about my back, my criminal background and helping people with criminal backgrounds, they first told me that I needed to stop doing that. Um, if I wanted to remain with the company, I would not be able to be out in public talking about my experiences. Um, initially, I tried that and I stopped. I stopped um, talking about it. I stopped kind of doing the reentry work and uh, ran from cameras and things like that. And it's in me. <laughs> it's in me. I'm a, a blabbermouth. And so I kind of just started back around the time that Amendment 4 um, started to receive a lot of attention. I'm not sure if you're familiar with Amendment 4 in Florida, are you? Uh, no, I'm not. <laughs> not too familiar okay. with Florida well, amendments, but elaborate. Okay, on well, yeah. yeah, yeah, sure. Last year, um, Florida had had a Senate, Senate, a citizen's ballot initiative called Amendment 4 um, that collected signatures from about 800,000 Floridians to allow people who were previously convicted of felonies to be eligible to vote after the completion of their sentences. And because I understood the importance of having our vote, our voting power back, I started to speak out publicly about it. And my, my organization that I was working with um, told me that I could not do that. And when I continued, they let me go. Well, the bill did get passed. Um, and now people with felonies can vote in Florida. Um, there were some 
some adjustments to who be, who's eligible and who isn't. But overall, it it allowed about 800,000 people um, out of 1.4 million Floridians with criminal convictions to now have the power to vote. Um, 600,000 who owes, who owe financial obligations are not eligible to vote because the, um, state during the implementation process decided that they would add financial obligations, court costs and fines, um, as a term, as a prerequisite, um, for, um, having it, your, your sentence completed. So instead of it being the 1.4 million people that we were expecting, it ended up being, you know, substantially less. But that's an entirely another conversation. Yeah. Um, the, the, the important thing is people were eligible to vote. But during that process, I lost my job because I was public and I was vocal. So I decided to create an organization that ensured that people like myself didn't continue to have those experiences in life and to just provide support. Um, and, and, I was already volunteering with organizations around town, so making that transition wasn't as difficult um, for me, or at least making the decision wasn't as difficult, but I didn't have much history with nonprofit work or being in administration with a nonprofit company. So, uh, of course, I'm having some, I've had some challenges and some rough bumps with that, but um, that is the reason that I started the organization. However, I was doing the work for about four years beforehand without um, actually making it official. So, I mean, that's great. But um, so you had kind of seen other organizations do things. What was there some kind of thing that inspired you into doing this specific chainless change thing or? That, yeah. Yeah, for sure. I, I, so I, I worked with a number of different organizations, um, especially even those who had some kind of programs that were related to reentry. And what I noticed was that there were a lot of gaps, tons of gaps. Yeah. People focus on workforce development more than anything else for people who are um, trying to be reintegrated into the community. And that poses a challenge because when someone is um, in contact with the criminal justice system or leaving incarceration, there's there are a lot of immediate needs that needed to be met, and it and it reminded me of the needs that I had when I returned back into the community. I mean, housing, transportation, food, water, being part of a community where you feel like like you're actually a member there. Um, those things need to be addressed before a person can have the ability to invest in making decisions um, regarding you, uh, a, a career or um, vocational training or anything else that is an extremely important investment in their future, it's just hard to kind of see the forest um, because of the trees. But it, 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 and so I decided to create the organization to help people address those immediate needs so that they can be prepared to take advantage of the, the opportunities that were available to help them create a better future for themselves. I wish that I had that, and I know that there were tons of people um, who needed that support, and that's the reason that I created the organization. Okay. Now, Mark, uh, just out of curiosity, what is the overall mission statement of Chainless Change? 
So the overall mission of um, Shameless Change is to help people who are negatively impacted by the criminal justice system through advocacy and support. So we want to be able to create a recovery community organization where people are able to come and feel like they belong while also being able to connect them to opportunities to improve their quality of life. And uh, how long, uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on how you provide them. Okay. Um, So there's a couple of things um, that we do. We have this peer support network, and peer support allows for people who are in recovery from mental health or substance use disorders um, to find their paths to recovery by being in a community where there isn't a power differential, where, you know, everyone is considered equal, everyone's the same, everyone has similar experiences, and everyone's value is the same inside of that community. And 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 so there's two ways that that's helpful, which is um, a, a theory that's considered mutual aid, and it allows people um, who have been able to sustain their recovery, I mean, having a having an experience with incarceration means that people are probably have probably experienced trauma, depression, a number of other uh, mental health or behavioral health challenges. Um, And then there is the intersectionality of substance use disorders for people who are incarcerated as well. Um, Even chronic homelessness is a condition that, you know, uh, one will need to figure out how to recover from. And, and so, we try to equip people um, who are in the recovery process by connecting them to people who were already um, successfully maintaining or sustaining their recovery. Um, so it helps returning citizens or people formerly um, incarcerated feel empowered by empowering others to make decisions um, that are in their best interest and find their paths to recovery. So that's our peer support network. Um, In addition to that, we have our food clinic that helps people who have legal financial obligations like court costs and fines that they can't afford resolve that. It also does sell and expungement services um, and allows people who are looking to have their rights restored receive guidance with navigating through that process um, it's pretty difficult to navigate through that process by yourself as um, as someone who may not have experience with the technical terms um, and the legal processes. So that's two of our programs. Um, in addition, in addition to that, we have a program that is geared towards connecting people to housing opportunities as well. In Florida, if you have a criminal background. Um, it's difficult to find housing, especially in South Florida, because there's such a large need for housing. The housing market is oversaturated. But for people with criminal records, they have to go through a process um, of getting a, of getting their backgrounds pulled and getting their approvals from HOA companies or or H- home homeowners associations and communities and communities where there's condos and um, owners, and then there are subsidized housing opportunities that are considered affordable housing, but not available for people with criminal backgrounds. And so we'll look out, we'll look for those opportunities where, where a background doesn't have 
the ability or doesn't carry as much weight resulting in people being excluded from housing. We work with tons of people who are homeless because of those types of structural um, policies. Uh, it's very respectable, uh, very commendable, honestly. Um, sounds like you have your hands in all sorts of different kind of getting people on their feet, uh, activities, especially when they're fresh out, things like that. Uh, how could people go about, like, let's say I'm in Florida, I just get out of prison. How do I contact you? How do I work with you? How do I get you to help me out with my situation? Our phone number is everywhere. <laughs> okay. Our phone number is everywhere. But in addition to that, um, we reach in and we communicate to with people inside of institutions to help them prepare for come uh, for when they're being released through an app called JPay, and so um, we'll communicate with them. We'll you know give them stamps so that they can respond to us and that sort of deal. They can write us if they're inside of the institution. People um, on the outside, they're able to just pick up the phone and call us. They can request services on our website. We even help people find employment opportunities with second chance employers or provide meals and bus passes for people who are in need, um, as well as clothing. Um, we try to get clothing to people when they're coming out and, and they're lacking basic essentials so that it just kind of softens the blow for them a bit. And if people are in need of help, they can send us an email at info at org. They can give us a call at 954-395-2961. They can request assistance through our website, which is www.chainlesschange.org. And um, if they're inside of an institution, they can contact us via mail or through the JPay app, and we'll start to work with them um, as well um, through that. And there are some places that we were some local facilities that we receive referrals from. Man. Mark, I got to tell you, that's extremely respectable. Um, just out of curiosity, how many years have you been doing this now uh, in, in so, terms of implementation until now? So it's been about five years that I've kind of been doing this work, two years as an organization, um, as Chainless Change. Have you had any kind of uh, big you know, or major roadblocks or struggles kind of uh, growing it, getting it to that next level? Um, and on top of that, is there anything else uh, basically that you need or that you would like to you know, kind of further your agenda and, and help this organization? I feel like it's extremely, extremely respectable. Do you have about three hours to go through that list? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. One, of, one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we we don't have a nonprofit background. It's literally a group of people that decided that they wanted to help people with similar experiences um, find their find their pay, their path to recovery and have a successful reintegration into the community. So. Because we don't have that nonprofit background, when it comes to things like applying for grants or fundraising, we may not necessarily um, find that to be as easy as other groups. In addition to that, um, people who are convicted of criminal of, of criminal offenses are not the prior the funding priority for the state of Florida. When programming is flashed. This is the first thing to go. Reentry services is the first thing to go, and so um, those challenges are the, the major challenges that we have. And it's really hard for us because we believe that in order to 
create sustainable change in lives in, in the lives of the people that we serve that we need to be able to employ them. And so there's a lot of opportunities to fund programs that would be extremely helpful um, to our community that we aren't eligible for because we adopt that model. We want to be able to hire our people um, and put them to work and teach them skills so that they can sustain themselves. And a lot of funding won't allow that because people with felonies have to go through this process um, or are completely excluded from working on certain funders' projects. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so that's a huge, huge challenge. And even with the employment opportunities, we want to be able to connect people to employment opportunities. And what we find is that we have a lot more success with local mom and pop type of organizations um, where we're where we're able to place people there, but it doesn't necessarily give them an opportunity to advance inside of those larger companies because you know there it might be five people working there and we're we're able to place one person in a position which is really appreciated, but we're not finding a lot of opportunities to place people where they can learn and grow because large corporations aren't allowing people with felonies to go through their hiring process. And even though we banned the box, what happens is um, on the back end, our, our, our participants are screened out because of their criminal background. So those are some of the challenges that we really face. And we could really use some support, especially with people who are experiencing nonprofit work and may be able to connect us with funders who would support programming that hire people with felonies. Mark, I mean, completely understandable, man. Uh, We got just like a minute left real quick. If someone is, uh, let's say, ex-felon or a business owner in the Florida area and they want to help out and support this cause, which is an incredible cause in my opinion, um, how do they go about contacting you or getting in touch to, to kind of help the movement? They can make a donation online at www.changelesschange.org. We also have shirts that say Second Chances Change Everything and a number of different slogans that we really believe in. When we sell those shirts, we use it to buy clothing for people who are leaving institutions as well as meals. Um, they can give us a call at 954-395-2961 or send an email at info at changelesschange.org. That's C-H-A-I-N-L-E-S-S change c-h-a-n-g-e.org all right thank you very much mark that's extremely inspirational thank you for the opportunity yeah no can't thank you enough for being a part of the felony inc podcast and uh, hope to have you again as a guest i look forward to it you have a great one all right you too support for today's episode comes from our friends at ruby receptionists at ruby they've mastered the art of turning rings into relationships their team of remote receptionists answer all your calls live as if they're right there in your office And with Ruby's mobile app, you can easily control how they screen, transfer, and take your messages. Together, you and Ruby transform your phone into the sales engine it was meant to be. Visit callruby.com slash startup radio to sign up, or better yet, call them at 833-861-8100 and use promo code STARTUPRUBY. Tell them Felony Inc. sent you and get $150 credit. You're listening to the Startup Radio Network. Listen. Learn. Launch. 10% of our gross revenue goes directly to women entrepreneurs in developing countries around the world through Kiva's microfinance program.